Hi, this is Phil Goldberg. If you're a regular listener, you're accustomed to my co-host, Dennis Ramundi, greeting you and introducing our guest. But Dennis is traveling and could not be with us today. So I'm flying solo with an honored guest. And I have to confess, a good old friend. And uh, in the context of today's interview, the word old has many meanings. Uh, I'm here with Connie Zweig. Connie is a retired psychotherapist. She has had many roles in publishing world in the past and is known as the shadow expert because of two of her books, Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow, oh three, and also Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, and also the author of uh, A Moth to the Flame, which is based on the life of Rumi. And today, she's back with us on Spirit Matters. We interviewed her a few years ago, and now she's back because she has a new book called The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, which has just come out, and it's a terrific book. And um, Connie, welcome. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. So, um, as I said, we interviewed you in the past. And so uh, people, I would encourage our listeners and viewers to go back and listen to that one to get a deeper sense of, of you and your past and your spiritual history. Today, we should jump right into the subject of the book uh, because it might be relevant to some of our listeners. <laughs> present company included. Um, what led to writing a book about aging and aging consciously? Give us the, uh, the origin story of the new book. Okay. Well, um, as I was approaching my late 60s, I was very surprised to find myself feeling disoriented. Um, because I've done so much emotional work with psychotherapy and shadow work and so much spiritual work with meditation practices, I didn't expect to feel that way. But I really began to feel um, a lot of uncertainty and a sense of um, disorientation, I think is the best word for it. And part of it was due to my fantasies of retirement from clinical practice, but it was also deeper than that um, because underneath retirement is who am I if I am not that role, the shadow expert, the therapist, the writer, the, the grandma, the wife, who am I if I'm not the role? And as you said, I've had many roles. So, um, I began to read as is my nature. And I discovered that there's very little material in the aging literature um, from depth psychology, which is orienting to the unconscious, which is my training, 
and also from contemplative practice that is non-denominational. So there are books about aging in Buddhism or aging in Christianity or aging, but not really much work um, that looked at both unconscious process and spiritual practice or fantasy and aspiration. So I began to think there was another book for me to write, even though I hadn't anticipated it. Um, another contribution to make. And so you did. And you talk about aging consciously. You talk about transitioning to a, a stage of life that can be disorienting. And you talk about the, the difference between aging and saging. Tell us a bit about that. Well, in this early period of my own research about five years ago, I found a group called Saging International, which is a community of elders that offers a year-long training to become a sage. That's basically their name for becoming an elder. And uh, as distinct from becoming a senior, when we have a Medicare birthday and it's kind of an automatic label change. But becoming a sage or an elder is an intentional process. And it requires inner work, emotional, cognitive, spiritual development to become an elder. It doesn't happen without our intention. It doesn't happen without our attention. And so that's really what the book became about. I love the training from Saging International. But again, it didn't include the unconscious process or what I call the shadows of age. And it didn't really include much about how to find spiritual practice that fits who we are now at this stage of life. You talk a lot about, uh, well, of course you're the shadow expert. Um, there are shadow elements in the aging process. And I'm guessing because I do it, <laughs> one of those is a kind of denial of the reality of getting old. And uh, what, can talk a bit about that and, and why, um, what some of the other elements of shadow that enter into it as we transition to, you know, a, a, another chronological and physiological stage of life. Okay, um, I was really surprised to find that a researcher at Yale, a psychologist named Becca Levy, has spent decades, her whole career, exploring how our unconscious internalized ageism actually shapes how we age. And that research fits so exactly with my work on the shadow. So if we internalize ageism throughout the lifespan, whether it's when we're kids and we're getting negative messages from parents or at school, or we're seeing older people shamed in television shows or derogative comments in the movies, we internalize aging is bad. And what Becca Levy found was these beliefs as they unfold through the lifespan have an impact 
on our physical aging, our emotional, mental states, our cognitive capacity, even our memory. There's a correlation with memory decline. They have an impact on our longevity. If we have positive images of age in the shadow, we actually live longer. And so I was fascinated that she was able, without using the language that I use, but she called it embodied stereotypes. If we embody a negative stereotype of old age, it has an effect on every part of us. It in fact shapes how we age. So if we're in denial of age, if we're like a friend of mine who's 89 years old and said to me the other day, I don't wanna be with those old people, I'm not like them. So, or all of the anti-aging advertising that we see on television with people um, striving to be like they were in midlife, striving to act heroically, not stop doing, not stop competing or being productive, living midlife values in late life or buying anti-aging projects, products, then what's happening is there's a part of us that's denying what is. Once we're in our 60s, 70s, 80s, we're not accepting who we are. In fact, are, we can't find self-acceptance if that internalized ageism is running the show. So, you know, with my method of shadow work, we uncover these shadows of age and then we personify them and give them a name. So this, this denial process I call the inner ageist. And the inner ageist is giving us negative messages about who we are. So we actually can't move into this stage of life feeling good about ourselves. Let me, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Uh, it, can there also be a certain reality to this? Your friend who's 89 might in fact be healthier and more vital than other people at that age. And you and I, in fact, had a very dear mutual friend who was in a similar category and moved into a, an assisted living place and lasted about a week because he felt that um, he was surrounded by old sick people and he moved into an apartment where he felt better about them. So is there some reality that we age differently and that some of us, uh, some people might uh, retain a certain vitality and uh, desire to accomplish new things or do new things. So these are not mutually exclusive. The, the longevity revolution now means that people are living as long for as many years from retirement to death as they live from birth to college. It's a huge period of life potentially for a certain number of people. And that includes health and vitality. So whereas it used to be that we would reach a certain age and rapidly decline, now that decline has leveled off and many people are living well into their 70s, 80s, even 90s. So it's not denying that 
we, we may still have capacities and aptitudes. We may still be creative, even athletic. But here's the thing though. Late life has, you know, Jung has a famous comment. Um, the morning of life has a different meaning and purpose than the afternoon of life. If we carry over into the afternoon, the meaning of the morning, then there's damage to the soul. So it's not that we can't do what we can do. It's that there's a different meaning and purpose now. And if we're striving in the old way, as we did in midlife, we're not going to connect with the deeper purpose, which from my point of view is to turn within and um, achieve a couple of tasks, developmental tasks that are needed to become an elder and to complete our lives in peace. We won't do that. We won't give that attention if we're still concerned about looking young, acting young, being young, being with young people only. Um, we won't give that attention and we won't find the treasures of this stage of life. Talk a little bit more about that, Connie, because um, uh, what, what would those deeper purposes be? What are the typical uh, imperatives of being an elder? So in all of the perennial spiritual traditions, the purpose of late life is spiritual practice and preparation for death. So for me, what I say is there are three portals. One portal to the shadow, which is the doorway to the depth within us, meeting the shadows of age, exploring the, the fears and concerns that are having an effect on us, whether we're aware of it or not. Then there's the portal to pure awareness, which we can call the self or the higher self or soul or pure consciousness or God within whatever we want through spiritual practice. And the third is mortality awareness. Because if we're denying that we're facing a limited time horizon, if we're in denial of that, uh, a client, at 67 said to me, you know, I have all the time in the world. And his mother had just died. So he had not taken in, he had not allowed his own mortality awareness to penetrate. And he may have a lot of time. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying the awareness that we're past midlife and we have a shortened time horizon to bring up new questions. What's most important to us now? What is um, our highest value? What do we need to repair? So many people tell me that this is a time for them for emotional repair. They wanna give and receive forgiveness. They wanna make amends with people they may have hurt or who hurt them. Other people tell me they want to do spiritual repair. You and I 
have been around the block here and we know that people have been spiritually abused, traumatized, disillusioned, and they may wanna do that kind of repair and ask different questions than they asked when they were first seeking in their 20s or 30s. What are those questions now? What are those questions now? What are the- Okay, well let's, well, let's come back to that. So those are some of the tasks. And then, you know, underneath that is, what do I need to do so that I won't die with regret? What am I leaving undone in my legacy that only I can do? And that's a task that we're not gonna return to, we're not gonna turn our attention to if we're still running on the treadmill of life. Okay. Does it create, can it create a new treadmill? Well, a slower pace, a slower <laughs> pace treadmill, right? And the slower pace is inevitable for most of us. For some people, it's a gradual slide to changing gears. But, the, and we get sad about that. And one of the things that I've noticed as an opportunity is that slower pace opens other doors. Mm. So I like to say age is our curriculum. If we notice the slower pace, if we notice certain diminishments, if we notice emotional losses or physical losses, how do we use those as spiritual practices? as grist for the mill, as Ramdas would say, to turn within and connect with something deeper. Do you find when people ask themselves the question, uh, if I were on my deathbed, what would I regret? Because I found myself asking myself that a, a few years ago as a writer, is there any in my, you know, fantasies of things I need to write? Is there anything I would actually regret not writing? And I realized I've been procrastinating about a certain thing for 25 or 30 years, and that I would regret. Yes, so you told me that. Yeah, I and did. That's, it's an important realization. But it also creates a new kind of pressure because now I feel I, I got to work on this and it's keeping me more disciplined than I would normally be about such things. But it also creates a new kind of pressure that at, for some people at a certain age, you don't want that kind of pressure. So how, how do people reconcile? I got to get this done before it's too late and I don't want the pressure, or I've got to see so-and-so one more time, or I've got to go on the trip I always wanted to go, but now it's, you know, I'm too old to go. I got to do it before they need to carry me. And, <laughs> and it could create another kind of pressure. Right. So I had that question before I wrote this book. And I basically sat with the question for two years. <clears throat> is this my ego? Is this my ego continuing to want to be relevant, to want to be seen? Um, 
to want to be the shadow expert? Or is this a call of my soul? Is this my soul saying, this is your dharma now, this is what's being asked of you, um, heed the call. And I sat with that for two years. And what I came up with was, I'm going to write this book differently than I wrote the others. I'm not gonna write it with that pressure. I'm not gonna write it with obligation. I'm going to write it, um, I, I, I set up a schedule where I would meditate and I would write. And I would meditate and I would write. And there was a certain flow state that happened that I didn't experience with the earlier books because I allowed myself to slow down, to turn within, to let things move through, through me and to be less attached to the outcome, which is really important. I mean, this is what karma yoga is about, right? We do what we do as a practice and we let go and we release it to the world. So for me, I, my intention was to write the book as an elder, not as a hero, a midlife hero, with all the kind of pushing and striving and desires. And, you know, I really tried to do it in a different rhythm. I didn't always succeed. But I would say I mostly succeeded. And there was a different experience of creativity with that, of my relationship to my psyche, you know, what I call the creative unconscious, and, um, and of my meditation practice, which included the emptying in the process before the filling up. So that's, so that's, kind of what I would suggest about that because um, some of us do hear a call in late life. And at my literary age retired after being a businesswoman her whole life. And now she paints full time. And she said, I never knew I was an artist, but she's not painting like she's doing payroll. <laughs> you know, she's painting with uh, a flow, a different pace, a different relationship to time, a different relationship to um, herself, a different desired relationship to the outcome. And so that's, that's my suggestion about that. Is it easier or harder when you start to uh, enter this stage of life consciously? to uh, achieve a more genuine non-attachment? I think this is very individual because there are many levels of non-attachment with kind of go with our level of consciousness or our stage of development. So there are a lot of people who have not done inner work and who age uh, and become more rigid, more controlling. Their neuroses harden, mm -hmm. right? And their belief systems harden and there's less an attachment. 
There are other people who may feel indifferent or apathetic. And that's not the unattachment we're talking about, like particularly people who get depressed. So what we're talking about is um, a level of awareness that comes with inner work and an opening out to the possibility that life unfolds without our ego's agenda. And if we're still in the experience of our ego controlling everything, then that's not gonna happen. One of the breakthroughs I had was doing a life review. And I really didn't think it would be helpful to me because I'm not oriented to the past. I kind of never look back. I'm not a nostalgic person. But I did the life review in great detail. And what I found was, and I teach how to do this in the book. And then in the book, I added the dimension of shadow. So you learn how to review your unlived life as well as your lived life. And what I found was that my life was full of magic and synchronicity and meetings with remarkable men and women. Mentors kept showing up. Joseph Campbell's whole hero's journey could actually be mapped onto my life, which blew my mind. And when I saw that, something in me let go. And it coincided with writing the book. Something in me let go of a kind of control that I've always been holding on to. Feeling my, my we called my father master of the universe because he thought he could, you know, control everything. And occasionally my husband Neil calls me master of the universe because my ego is just acting like nobody else can do it. I have to do it all. I'm in charge, right? And when I saw that in my life review, <coughs> something released, something released in me. And I can trust the flow of life more now. And I can observe it. I'm separate from it rather than trying to manage it. I we would call it the Tao. Mm. We could call it the Tao or Dharma, whatever we call it. It's that flow that's bigger than we are. I'm just glad you didn't call your book the Tao of Aging. Yeah. It would have been too cliche, um, but it would have fit. I would think also a kind of life review, um, if done properly, can lead to uh, gratitude instead of regret and uh, victimization. If, if you know, every once in a while, I look back at things and I say, "Man, I was really lucky," or I'm, and I, or I'm so glad that happened, and at, you know that sort of thing. Whereas uh, habitually, we often you know look back at the the, the the stuff we, we regret or are angry about. Well, I view my most traumatic events and I've had my share of suffering as initiations into the shadow. And they were incredible teachings which led me to this work that I've been doing now for three decades. So without those traumatic events, that wouldn't have happened. When, uh, 
I see around me, you know, people, my, my peers, and we're, as we are all aging, um, and I see uh, some people wanting to, uh, those who are lucky enough not to have to worry about continuing to earn a living and um, financial pressure, which is a whole other category of concern for people, for many people. Uh, so we want to be careful not to just speak to the, you know, the privileged who, who don't. But when, when career concerns lessen, people either want to just have a good time and do things they always wanted to do and or make uh, or uh, commit to some kind of service to make a contribution that they couldn't do earlier in life. Talk to me a bit about service, because that's a, it's an impulse of, of becoming an elder that I think uh, many people have. So, you know, retirement from paid work is like a Rorschach test. We, throughout our lives, we unconsciously project onto it what it's going to mean. I'll be free, I'll be at leisure, I can do whatever I want, I can travel, I can rest. Or we project onto it, I'll be useless, invisible, I'll be so bored with nothing to do. Um, and retirement is a very individual experience. So if we can become aware of retirement in our shadows, the unconscious projections that we're attributing to it, and if we can become aware of the shadow character in us that's stopping us from stopping, I call it the doer or the driver, the provider, the competitor, that part of us that cannot slow down, that is gonna sabotage retirement because it, it's our identity. I am the doer, right? I am the CEO. I am the teacher. I am the therapist, the shadow expert. If we grip that identity unconsciously, then we don't let go and slow down, change pace, and you know, open the invitation to the new stage of life. So there's several things here. One is we're, pro we're projecting onto retirement, either romanticizing it or um, denigrating it. And we are identified with the part of us that cannot retire because it can't stop doing. That's where all of the meaning comes from. Or we have a shadow character from childhood, like one of my clients had the useless retiree because his grandfather sat and watched TV all day long. And he said, I'll never be like that. So all of these things are going on in the shadow around retirement. What I'm trying to teach about this is that there's an opportunity to shift our identity here from role to soul, from the roles in the workplace or the roles in the family, which are changing 
um, always changing to a spiritual essence, a spiritual identity. I mentioned this before, the deeper reality of who we really are. And retirement opens that door. It gives us that opportunity because the doing slows down or stops. And then we ask again, who am I? If I'm not the CEO or the nurse or the mom, who am I? And that for me is, is a profound chance to shift our identity to something more um, aligned with this stage of life, a spiritual identity. That's a good segue to what I'd like to uh, talk about in our last several minutes together, uh, the inevitability of uh, illness and death and how we deal with that. For one thing, even those of us who are aging and are healthy and vital, we're dealing with the illness and death of people we care about. That becomes an increasing reality. So there's that issue. How do we deal with loss and, uh, as we age? Uh, uh, and then it's the inevitability of our own either aching joints <laughs> or more serious illness and pain as we get older, physical pain, and of course the inevitability of death. And, and uh, speaking for myself as a longtime spiritual practitioner and teacher and everything, I like to think that if I'm conscious as I'm dying, I will handle it with grace. But I know that I don't know whether I will or not. What advice are you, you, can you give people who are dealing with A, loss, B, the inevitability, or perhaps the reality of uh, pain and illness and mortality? So if we're practicing role to soul, which by the way is a term coined by Ramdas, if we're practicing role to soul, if we're doing our meditation practice and quieting the mind and centering in our breath or mantra or prayer or whatever practice we're doing, then any activity becomes a practice. This is what I mean by ages our curriculum. So I spent two years as a caregiver for a friend with cancer. And what I, what I found was I could attune to my shadow issues that were coming up by listening to my inner dialogue. I could attune to my um, self-observation and watch the feelings that were coming up. I could recognize myself in her, that this may well be my future. And eventually what I experienced, and I was, we were intimate, so I was sharing a lot of this with her. And eventually what I experienced was the roles fell away. It was not caregiver and patient or um, 
healthy person and sick person, or giver and receiver. It was soul to soul. We were two souls on a journey, and that's what we were experiencing at the moment. And it was incredibly liberating in that way. And I think that it helped me prepare to be on the other side. You know, Ramdas once said, we go from how can I help to how can you help me? And so now when I do my meditation and my other practices, I view them in the context of impending death. This breath may be my last exhalation. How complete can I make it? I breathe in, I take in life, I breathe out, I release it. And so my meditation practice has changed in this context. Um, there's a beautiful book called The Blossoming Lotus by Thich Nhat Hanh, which is mindfulness practices around illness and death. So for people who are interested in learning how to put your attention there and not look away, how to really be mindful about these issues, that's a beautiful book. Um, also, you know, Ramdas' last book, Walking Each Other Home, I highly recommend. And I'll um, tell our listeners, he wrote that with Mirabai Bush, and we interviewed Mirabai when the book came out. You can find that in our archives. Yeah. So illness and death are a part of the cycle of life. You know, the creator and the destroyer are always already everywhere. <laughs> And just as we see the leaves falling from the tree and the seeds becoming leaves again, the same thing is happening with our atoms and our cells and our molecules. And there's the life force and there's the death force. And if we begin to see that rather than take it personally, like I don't want my conniness to die. I don't want people to forget about me. I, 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 I. That creates the suffering. That creates the holding on at the moment when we need to let go. And so if we begin to look at it more, I would say archetypally or impersonally, rather than it's personal, there's a shift that happens and we come to feel more at peace with this process that's happening from the moment we're born. Isn't there also uh, in deep meditation practices and, and uh, other deep uh, practices, uh, the uh, experience of knowing we're not just our body, of identifying yeah. with the self that transcends physical form. And in that way, meditation has often been called a sort of uh, dress rehearsal for death in that, in that uh, when it leads to the, that kind of transcendence. Uh, and yeah. I'm sure you write about that as well in the book. Yeah, so there are practices in there to learn I am not my body, I am not my mind, I am not my beliefs, I am not my story, all the stories that we tell ourselves. I am that. 
And whatever that means for you, that which lives and breathes through everything, or that which is divine, or that which is Gaia, or that which connects it all, whatever you, you want to put in there, emptiness, or shunyata, or fullness, Brahman, whatever language works, I am that. I am not this body, and I am not this conniness. And this conniness will be forgotten, long forgotten. Even as the books live on Amazon, my conniness will be long forgotten. And I'm making peace with that. Good. I'm making peace with that now. 72 years of life experience. It's time to make peace with that. Well, Connie, thank you for being with us. Thanks for this new contribution, which I think is terribly significant for all of us. And, and I would encourage our listeners who don't think of themselves as of the age where this is needed. Um, you may be 50 or 40, but these things are going to happen. And the earlier you uh, start to inquire, the better. You'll also be in better position if you read Connie's book to help the elders in your life. So Connie, thanks for being with us. Everybody go by the inner work of age. You'll be glad you did. And um, look for Connie online. Gratitude to you, Phil. Take good care.